to History on the Dark Side. I'm Jared. And I'm Jacob. And today, we want to kind of commemorate something that happened rather recently. Uh-huh. And take a look back at uh, what it actually means. It's pretty interesting whenever you can find an artifact. You find some little piece, some evidence, something you can hold and see. Mm-hmm. When you're discussing historical happenings and events and people. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons like Egyptologists really like it when they find a new tomb and there's mummies and there's... You know. I mean, that's kind of the whole appeal of treasure hunting, isn't it? Like, not only, you know, if you find treasure, you're finding money and value. But, like, when you actually get to go out and you find that little piece of a civilization long lost... Like, that's a thrill all on its own. And there's this entire market for, you know, historical artifacts because people tie those ideas and those people and those events to items. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see it in religious items all the time, Mm -hmm. but you see it in historical items, too. I mean, they're ever auctioning off letters that are signed by Abraham Lincoln or George Mm -hmm. Washington. And these things become... You know, increasingly valuable over time. I think they're, that's what makes history more real for people, I think. It's also what made Pawn Stars. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> that Chum Lee has no job without this kind of thing. Well, I guess he might not have one anyway. Chum Lee's had some problems. Yeah, he's had some issues. <laughs> so, what we're talking about today has a lot to do with uh, the finding and actually going to the site, sending down some equipment. So the discovery, the underwater video of the ship Endurance. Mm -hmm. And in March of last year, 2022, they were able to send out just, and the video is amazing, this big, gorgeous, ice-breaking, super modern, sleek ship. Mm Mm-hmm. And it goes down to Antarctica after several years and a couple attempts of uh, locating and then getting equipment down to the Endurance. Mm-hmm. And down goes the submersible. You know, technology is amazing for this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. And at the bottom of the Weddell Sea, 10,000 feet below the surface of the ocean, there's the Endurance. Still there. It's torn up, but for the amount of, you know, punishment that was imposed upon it, it's in really good shape. And I imagine that um, once it sank, its life got better. That water's super cold, mm-hmm. and so it would tend to. No one's gonna like go down there and mess with this with the wreck. Nope. It's the first time <laughs> for over a hundred years yeah, before for... anybody could even find it, let alone get down to it. Mm-hmm. And if you are unaware of what the place in history is for the ship Endurance, it's not like a a Spanish ship that was full of gold from the New World, you know, Mm -hmm. carting bullion around or some... uh, There's no buried treasure on the ship. No, what the the treasure that's buried is, is its connection to one of the most unlikely and most amazing and most... Just unbelievable rescue missions, survival Survival attempts. (laughs) I I don't even know what you call it, because like every incredible survival story, no one sets out for, hey, you know what? I think it'd be cool. Let's absolutely get as close to death as we can, hang out there for a while, and then see if we can still live through this. Yeah, nobody goes into a plan thinking, let's pitch a tent next to death, and then, you know, <laughs> just see hang if out. We can get out. Maybe we'll play Uno together, and if we don't like it, we'll just peace out the next night. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's never how it turns out in the planning, Mm-mm. but it's always how it looks <laughs> in the moment. So the Endurance is really the last of the big uh, ships of discovery, I guess. That's what it really feels like. At this point, everything we can find, you know, overseas has been charted and mapped. And I I think it's fair to say that the idea of 
you know, this era of discovery, really it goes, I mean, you could say this goes back to, you know, like Columbus and Da Gama and some of those explorers who were finding islands, were finding continents, were finding shapes and starting to map the continents and go around Africa and South America. Just most of the world was unaware that these places were there with great exception, of course, for the people who lived in those parts of the world. They knew it existed. Well, I think you can even take it a step further and say that the age of discovery translated out to space as well. Like we've gone and put people on the moon. At this point, we've charted like all of our galaxy. There's so much out there. And it's a fun little parallel because, you know, space is the sea of stars. There you go. You need a ship to get there. And if you're thinking of crazy moments in space exploration history, I think you start and end at Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's interesting to me because prior to that movie, I didn't understand hardly anything about what happened on that mission. Yeah. I knew there were missions that went to the moon after Neil Armstrong and Buzz went. I knew that happened. And I knew that, you know, there was trouble on some of them. But when Apollo 13 came out, which is a great movie, I love Ron Howard as a director, like Tom Hanks and everything except Elvis. Oh, I don't like him as the colonel. Anyway, (laughs) I learned a lot. And as somebody who studies history, seeing a movie like that is always when I go, oh, now I want to see what actually happened. What really went down? Because this is an incredible story. How much of this is going to be true? Yep. I find so many parallels in that idea of Apollo 13, and you're out there, and there's no one really to help you, and you've got to use your wits and what you have on hand, Mm -hmm. because you are not running to the local Circle K while you orbit the moon. And we're going to see some of that exact same need for ingenuity, for thinking outside the box, and really for surviving more because you chose to and had that mindset than anything else when we talk about Ernest Shackleton and the voyage of the endurance. Mm-hmm. It seems that when you get caught out in the cold, you've got to get creative. And there's no place on Earth that's more cold than the Antarctic. Yep. So the endurance, like we said, it's over 100 years since this ship sank. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, if we're going to start the podcast on, hey, we found this boat, a hundred years later, it's sinking. <laughs> then let's uh, let's start from this boat had a, a job. Mm-hmm. It was there to be part of an expedition. A lot of things went wrong, mm-hmm. and ultimately, this boat sank. Yeah. And when the boat sank, so did the plans for a successful Antarctic expedition. Mm-hmm. So did looking at this as anything other than a survival mission. Yep. Because without that boat, they didn't have a way to get home. And when we talk about, you know, the they, we're looking at, you know, almost 30 people, Mm -hmm. 28 people who've been in the Antarctic for some time. Yeah. At this point, they've been in the Antarctic for over a year. And they're not on Antarctica like we think of it. They're not on the continent. They're out in the ice shelf that freezes and breaks apart and refreezes Mm -hmm. over the Arctic winters. They've been there for some time, and their boat, their lifeline, their, you know, their Apollo rocket (laughs) sinks. I mean, at that point... They had a plan, and they knew going into this plan that they might have to spend an extended period of time on the ice. But when your way off the ice goes down underneath, now it's a it's a survival mission. Now yeah. you're trying to turn this into some kind of a rescue op so that that way you and everyone with you can just get out because people die out here. And. They die out here today. Yeah. If you go to the research base at McMurno, that's the international research base in Antarctica today, Mm -hmm. where they have every conceivable amount of technology. 
there are points in the year where if you get seriously injured out there, if they can't fix you on site, you're going to die. Yeah. Because they can't get aircraft in and out of there during certain seasons. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about a time that's right there around mm -hmm. when the Wright brothers are going to start aircraft. That's, I mean, I, it's been around a little bit because we're talking the time of World War One. So, yeah, there's planes, but there's no planes flying to Antarctica. No. They can't cover the distance. There's no way to... Where are you going to land it? You don't land a seaplane in the Antarctic. And I don't know anything about geography, but the Bermuda Triangle might be in the way. <laughs> I'm, not, okay, I'm not sure. I'm not a uh, geographer, but I feel like uh, most likely that is not in the way of this little problem. Well, when it comes to planes, that's my biggest fear. <laughs> As for most things, it's actually my most You and Amelia fear. Earhart. Okay. <laughs> so as the endurance sinks, we find a crew that had hoped to be out on the ice mm -hmm. or to be out on the continent and to investigate, to go from one side of the continent to another. They had a great deal of supplies mm -hmm. and everything was tied to the ship. They're lucky because this ship sank slowly in, in phases yep. and they had already moved what they needed to live off the ship. But how, I'm trying to imagine, <laughs> how much better do you feel that you have the material off the ship and on a piece of ice? And, and the ship it cannot move. You yeah. cannot repair it. There's no trees. Yeah, the ship is in trouble. And you start thinking, okay, well, I don't know if we're going to be able to move this ship, so let's pull the stuff we need off in case it goes down. Now the ship goes down, but you're still not even on land. You're yeah. still on ice that is either freezing over or melting every day, and now you don't have any place to put your supplies. And it's it's drifting. Yes. In like this giant, ultra-slow kind of counterclockwise circle mm -hmm. unbelievable yeah and you're there you're a person you are straight up out there <laughs> so from here it's a rescue op or not a rescue op but it's a survival mission how are we gonna get out of here yeah so when you are floating on your icd right in the middle of the ocean yeah what would your plan be well, and this is crazy, but the image that comes to my head is, you know, back when people were really touting global warming instead of climate change. Mm -hmm. Okay, you would see a picture of this too skinny polar bear mm -hmm. standing on this piece of ice that's floating by itself out in the Arctic Sea in the north, you know, by the North Pole. And like, this is the image I have in my mind that we have these 20... Eight people, mm -hmm. and at that time, there's some dogs, too, so there's yeah. some animals, and they're on a very large piece of ice, but you're floating on this giant piece of ice. What do you even have to work with to get anywhere? Well, they have dog sleds. Okay. That, that was part of their plan for traversing the, the continent once they got onto Antarctica. So they've got a bunch of dog sleds, or they have six dog sleds. It's not a bunch. But they have a bunch of dogs. They've got like 60 dogs at some point. Um, and they've got these three lifeboats that they had pulled off of the Endurance before it went down. Okay. And they need a plan. So they've got some sleds. They've got some sleds. They've got some very small boats. Yeah. They're not useful because the water's not open. Mm-hmm. So you're... And they're heavy. They're super they're heavy. They're like... A ton or 1,000 yeah. pounds, 2,000 pounds, big, heavy lifeboats. Yep. Because they're sturdy, mm -hmm. but that means they're heavy. And if you're in the water, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But when you're on land of ice and snow, and it's not even and it's not smooth, it's jagged, it's rugged, it's changing, it's moving. And when the sun's out, it's all slush. What on earth do you do with that? Uh, it makes moving terrible. So you want to have a place to go. Yeah. They have some options, and none of these are good. <laughs> none. Okay. On the complete other side of the continent, there is actually another boat that has set up some supply depots because this group from the Endurance was ultimately supposed to go across the whole continent. Mm -hmm. So this other boat, the Aurora, part of the same mission, 
had set up some supply depots partway across Antarctica. Yep. But that means you have to go across half a continent to get there, and you have to assume that those depots actually got established, and you have to be able to actually find them. It, Antarctica's a large place. Oh, yeah. And this is before we have radio transponders, where there is no GPS. Yeah. And if you map where these things are supposed to be, you're, you're reckoning with a compass mm-hmm. <laughs> and... You've done some compass work. Jacob here is an Eagle Scout. I am. Uh, how how comfortable do you feel that you're going to be able to lock down in an area of a thousand miles and get within? I don't know. What do you got to be within a mile, a quarter mile to find a flag that's on a supply depot? We'll call it like two miles. Okay. Because you know on the. The good side is maybe that depot is in a plane. Right. And you can see it, you know, from wherever you're at. But what you're really fighting is you're fighting the snow and the fog and just being caught in white. And if you're yeah, caught in white out, you can't see anything. Yeah. Um, so two miles, and I feel like that's generous. How well I think that I could put <laughs> us down in that spot, not at all. Every time that I've ever used a camp compass, it's been all based off of landmarks. And when everything looks like ice, uh, they it's funny that you mentioned the whiteouts and the blizzards and all that, because prior to the ship sinking, it was right there. Mm-hmm. And they had some little areas set up near the ship before it sank where they would like have camps. And, the dog, and they had a wire running between them. Because when the blizzards came, you couldn't see the ship. Yep. You could get lost and not see the ship. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing standing up above the ice, because yep. that's how heavy the... Unbelievable. That's where you're going to get stuck. Yeah. There's no one who can come and get you. And you've got more to worry about than just getting stuck. Um, when the ship had developed a crack in it... Uh-huh. Uh, Ernest Shackleton, the lead of the entire expedition, he called everybody off the boat and decided we're going to set up a camp here on the ice. Okay. One night in the middle of the night, a crack develops running right through the camp and right under a tent. This is so like a cartoon. It's (laughs) so out there. I wouldn't believe it unless I like (laughs) it's real and I don't believe it. This crack develops, and he yells, crack. All hands lash up. Everybody comes running out of their tent, and as... This is like the Bronx in the late 80s. Somebody yells, crack, and everybody goes berserk. Everybody's losing their minds. (laughs) People are all rushing out of their tents. The crack opens, and the whole tent falls through. (laughs) The last man to come out of the tent yells, there's two more in there. Shackleton runs over to the crack, reaches down, and pulls a man out by his sleeping bag. Completely drenched, he's coughing, and he tells Shackleton that I was the last one, nobody else is in there. They go through and do a head count, and Shackleton asks him, are you okay? And the man responds, I'm all right, but my tobacco was in there. Oh, that's too much. This is like a real-life jump scare. It's... (laughs) Right? Like... The earth opened up, you fall in, guy pulls yeah. This is a horror movie. <laughs> this this doesn't happen in real life. So the crack, like, you're not worried only about where to go, but you're terrified to stay still for too long. Yeah. What do you because do? Because it doesn't matter what you do. The ice is alive. Mm-hmm. It's doing its own thing. The ice will eat you. Yeah. So here we have... I mean, I just keep coming back to, so where where do we go? No one's coming to you. You've got to go somewhere. That's true. So we, we're not going to go across the continent. We've, I feel like that's a non-starter. No, they've decided that they're not going to go across the continent. There is a, a, a base where there's some supplies from a previous mission. This is crazy to me, too. Yeah, a guy set up a camp with some supplies like 10 years ago. So this <laughs> is the crazy. That's not the, even the crazy part. <laughs> The crazy part is that 10 years ago, there was another Antarctic expedition and Ernest Shackleton, the captain of this expedition, set up these supplies at that depot for them. 
that expedition didn't make it to the depot. So Ernest Shackleton knows that there's uh, supplies in this depot because he bought them 10 years ago. While he's in London or wherever, he's not even <laughs> he's there not in the Antarctica. There. But he's the guy that buys them for this other expedition. Yep. So when we say he knows he's there, I mean, he, he kind of does because he bought them. He knows uh -huh. they were supposed to get delivered. He knows there's no way they used them all because people were dying on this yep. other expedition and it didn't turn out. But he's still going on faith. Like, is this stuff actually there? there? Is the stuff there even usable? Yeah. <laughs> is it not buried under the snow? Will we ever find it? Because it's been 10 years. So they ultimately decide that they want to... Shackleton decides he wants to make a run for this depot. Because that's their best plan. That's the best plan <laughs> for trying to get the supplies to try and figure out what to do after yeah, that. Yeah, what's next? We'll get to that when we get to this. The problem is that in order to get to that su supply depot, it's too risky to split up. You right. have to bring everyone with you. Yeah. And it's too risky to leave these giant boats behind because you might need them. Yeah. If some cracks develop that separate you from the depot or if the ice just melts around you altogether, you need to be able to have those boats in order to get wherever you're at. Cracks are developing daily out here. It mm -hmm. is not uncommon to see a crack open and close within minutes, just like when it ate up that tent. So they have to move these boats along with all the dog sleds. Okay. The dog sleds do a pretty okay job, but it the ice is more like waves than like being on land. Yeah, that we're You're still on This the is not ocean. a hockey rink. Yeah, not at all. And so you need to be able to navigate through these you know, through the cracks over and up and down these mountains, and there are glaciers that will just pop up all around you. Yeah, yeah, chunks and, of and glacial ice. Just a boom, hey, yeah, I was down there, now I'm here. Almost Hi. like if you were on the ocean and a tidal wave came, but ice. Yeah. It's that fast, the pressure builds up and it shoots up out of the ground. And so moving the dogs around all of this is problem enough. But then when you have to bring these giant thousand pound boats, you have to just create a relay and bring them all along. Now, Shackleton was also worried that if you brought one boat too far ahead, then a crack would develop and somebody would get stuck on the other side with the other two boats. Right. So you could only really move the boats about 300 yards at a time. And then you would have to turn around and walk back to the next one and bring that one as well. And this is killing people. I mean, I guess the good news is you're busy. You don't have a lot of time to think about this sucks and we're going to die. Yeah. But on the bad side, now you're burning insane amounts of calories. Mm -hmm. You have a very limited supply of food. Mm -hmm. And it's questionable where you're and how you're going to get more. On the first day that they started making this trek, they made it about a mile. But it was still more than a mile with how much back and forth you had to do. On the second day, they only made it about three quarters of a mile. But Shackleton estimates that they walked closer to six miles with how much circumventing they had to do and how many relays they had to do. Right. And that was when he decided that this wasn't going to be a feasible way to make it. They wouldn't even make it to the supply depot before everyone. And he's got some naysayers who are yes. like, yeah, dang right. What were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. And the biggest of these naysayers was actually the carpenter. Make, uh, McNish. Uh, yeah. Harry McNish. And McNish is known for being a um, the lawyer of the sea. He knows all about the sea law and what does and doesn't go. And he made the point to Shackleton, throwing his hands down, that after the endurance was sunk, his contract was terminated. Yeah. And this is this is true for most, you know, any kind of contract work in the sea. If the boat goes down, I'm no longer obligated to work and you're no longer obligated to pay me. Shackleton, having been had the foresight 
to prepare for any contingency knew that this might happen. And he added a what's it called when you add something it's that little clause or an amendment. Yeah. He added a clause that said that even if the the endurance sunk, then the men would be held to their contract until they made it home. And they'd still get paid. And they'd still so get it's, paid. It's contract for both sides, which was unusual. Very unusual. Um, for both sides. So forward thinking by Shackleton on the legal side yep. before you ever go there. And that was enough to shut up McNeish. And that night around the campfire, Shackleton read out the entire contract to everyone on the expedition. <laughs> so there would be no further issues. Yeah, I guess. I mean, at that point, the boat's gone. It's not even really a mutiny anymore if the boat's gone under normal circumstances. Yep. And, I mean, ultimately, I, I think it really comes down to, in those circumstances, who has a freaking better idea? Yeah. So it's, there's a point where, you know what, we better hang our hat with this guy because mm-hmm. we're, we're probably going to die. But if I'm in charge, we're definitely going to die. I don't know where nothing is. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that might have been what held a lot of people together during this time because, I mean, of this group... I think four of them had actually been to Antarctica right. ever. The vast majority and really had never been there, didn't know it. Some of them haven't even had a lot of like sea experience. Yep. This about is... half of them are seamen and about half of them are scientists. Yeah. With maybe seven people in total who could probably find their way around in yeah. these conditions. We got some photographer, we got a cook. <laughs> We got uh, a, a guy who stowed away. We got <laughs> a motley crew here that were not picked based on their. If this goes south and falls apart, who's gonna take over for me? Because my part's done. Like that's not in the grand scheme. Not at all. I mean, ultimately, we planned that we might get stuck for a while. Nobody planned the boat's gonna sink. Yep. So we are on. Uh, Making it up as we go. Yep. We are on improvise, adapt, overcome, Marine Corps rules at this point. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So the boat sunk. We're on this floating disc, and the supply depot is out of the question. Now what? Yeah, they start to realize that, that the ice that they're on, which changes every day, as a larger thing is moving, and it's circulating... And they're moving every day farther from the supply depot. So aside from we can't get the boats there, nature is moving us further from it every single day. Yep. And there's there's no way they could move faster than the drift is pushing them from. Not at all. There are just winds howling every day and gale force. And that's what's pushing this ice all the way in this big I think it's counterclockwise. Pattern. Counterclockwise, yeah. You know, that's why in Australia, when you flush the toilet, it circles the other way. I, I'm told that's a thing. I don't know. Because of the winds in Antarctica? Because if you're above or below the equator, that's which way the toilet flushes. Who told you that? <laughs> I saw it on the internet, so you know that's true. <laughs> Reach out with your comments on Jared's knowledge of plumbing. <laughs> I'm a historian, not a plumber. I may have just <laughs> gave that tip off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bet you didn't know that, Eagle Scout. I'm so upset <laughs> that I want to Google that right now. Well, it'll wait. All right. All so, right. so what are we can't options? do anything over land. We can't do anything over land. And typically, if you're in that kind of a situation today, you would just hunker down and wait. Somebody's coming for you. That's not a thing. That's not the case. Did we mention that even if somebody wanted to come and help you, it's World War One. Yeah. The world's a little busy. Yeah. The day before they left for this whole adventure, it, World War One started. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, timing. <laughs> so there's really, even if somebody, even if you could contact somebody, you can't. Nope. Don't have enough radio signal. And even if they wanted to help, they don't. They couldn't because they're at war. And awesome. It, and even if they wanted to, they 
They can't mystically go through They've the got ice. No clue. They got the same problem you did. Exactly. Their best guess is well, we just we have to wait on the ice until there's enough breakup, enough warm up mm -hmm. that we can get these little lifeboats that are not made <laughs> to go humming around the Arctic Sea. Not at all. And try and get them anywhere where we might find humanity, which yep. is not close. Not at all. So they decide that they're going to hunker down and they're going to wait out um, until summer when the ice can try and melt some. <laughs> it's got to be a great feeling. Guys, I got, a good, I got the plan. So during this time, they experience some insane things. Now... One of the things that they experience frequently is mirages. Oh, yeah. And I've heard about being caught in the desert and experiencing yes. a mirage because oh. of the heat or whatever. I see the, in the cartoons, it's always there's the tree, yeah. there's the pool of water. Little, uh, you know, the, the oasis. I've only ever heard of mirages in the desert. But apparently there are still mirages out here in Antarctica caused by all the light refraction because everything is reflective. Now, some of the things that they've seen is that the sun would come up and show itself at 122 and then set two minutes later. And then 10 minutes after that, the sun would come up and set <laughs> again and then come up and set a third time all within an hour. Yeah, unless the world is spinning really fast. Yeah. That's uh, not a thing. That's not real. <laughs> um, another thing that they would see is if you look out over the ice, it would be like you see the horizon, and then if you were to cut and paste that horizon on top of itself and then do it a third time, almost so that you're looking at a desktop screen just stacked all over itself, and that's what it looks like. And you can't tell if that's land or ice or clouds or storms. You can't storms. tell if it's real or fake. You right. don't know what's what's. At that point, it would be driving me insane. There was never any point that I've come across. I've seen no evidence that it drove anybody into a psychosis or hysteria over these mirages. They seem to be well-founded enough, at least in their mind, that they knew that, hey, this is a trick of the light. But hearing about these types of things, I'd lose my mind. I wouldn't know what's real at that point. And that's real because previous expeditions had had people out on the ice or on the continent in the dark because winter there, sometimes there's months with no light or seeing things or thinking they saw things. And people went nuts. People went crazy. People got violent because of these hallucinations, optical illusions, because of the stress of not being able to tell, you know, with any sensory reality mm -hmm. what's going on. That's not an imaginary fear. If you're that type of an explorer, you've studied other people yep. who you have gone that through that exact thing. same thing. I have to say that if I was going to pick my poison between the desert mirages and the Antarctic ones, I'd choose the desert because seeing some water and a tree sounds way better than all this other stuff. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> and the thing about the Antarctic, especially in, I don't think it matters what time of year for them, you're always cold. Always it's a matter of, am I so cold that I'm getting frostbitten? Am I so cold that I'm numb? Mm -hmm. Or am I just a little uncomfortably cold? Mm -hmm. For a lot of the time, they're on this ice, and you talked about it being, you know, kind of like mushy, slushy mm -hmm. at times. You're almost always wet. Mm -hmm. Your sleeping bag's wet. It's not like we've got these hollow fill man-made fibers and they dry out quickly at low temperatures this crap's wet and it yep. freezes yep and it doesn't unfreeze until you crawl in that thing yep and as soon as it does unfreeze now you're sleeping in a puddle bag yep um there has been several documents of people or several documented accounts of people you know taking off their, like, you know, going through their clothes and trying to clean them as best they can, but you never take off your underwear and you never take off your socks. Because if you take your socks off and they get wet, you will never get them back on again. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, well, that's got to add to the fun. Oh, yeah. I'm just always dirty and smelly, and so is all these other 27 dudes. Yeah, nobody's had a, a proper bath or shower in uh, Over a year. like a year at this point, <laughs> which is just unimaginable, right? Yeah. That's, that's not great. And then in, in the accounts, whether that's from Endurance or West, mm-hmm. there are a few... South? M- were they or south? Yeah, south. <laughs> you know the directions, <laughs> east, north, whichever it was. I guess it makes sense it'd be south. Good job, good job, Professor Anders. So <laughs> there are some little mentions of yeah, the people are getting a little ripe. Yeah, the only good news is I think everybody that's, is. That's really to be expected. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's still uncomfortable though. Over time, they're gonna. They're going to get to the point where they can't justify feeding the dogs. Once you realize you're not going to do anything overland, Mm -hmm. the dogs are now a liability, not an asset. Yeah. And this is uh, hard for some people to hear and talk about. Mm -hmm. But they're going to end up just killing the dogs. Yep. Because if you kill them before they die of starvation or anything, you can eat them. them. Yep. And at this point, we're on this kind of a level where it's about survival. And we have to make some hard choices. And the men were really crushed about this. They had developed that camaraderie and those relationship with those dogs that had been a real boost to their morale. They had named every dog they had. Oh, yeah. And they knew their personalities and... You know, this guy really got along with this dog and this dog. They kind of had their favorites. Yep. It'd been a definite plus. And on the day they start calling the dogs, that's in several of the people who kept journals or diaries. You know, if they talked about it at all, they said that was one of the hardest days they've ever had on this trip. Yeah. I can see how that would be really tough. Oh, yeah. It also reinforces this idea that this thing we're doing is really life and death. Yep. Like, we might not be, quote, dying yet, but things are dying. And once we run out of other things, what's left to die? Yep. That'd be us. So, after they've been on the ice for a while, and the summer has finally come around, and... Shackleton decides that it's time to move again. And we've got enough. Like, we're going to try some more. Now we're trying to move overland to get to open water, right? Yeah. So that's, I guess, a better plan because you want to get to where you can get in this boat. Yeah. Once you can get into the boat, you can move faster than a mile a day. But once you get in the boat, you're also completely removed from your extra stores of food, equipment. Like, you're bare bones at the point you get in the water. Yep. Shackleton was a big, big... He really emphasized speed. Uh-huh. He had heard He'd heard stories about other explorers who tried to prepare for every outcome. And he felt like when those people went wrong, they could have just dummied it down and sacrificed everything else for speed, and they would have made it out. And so when Shackleton makes the decision that, hey, we are going to make for open water, and from there we will try and make for land, it is leave everything behind. Yeah. it's uh, And they had been extremely bare bones prior to this. Yep. And we're really honing this thing back to the flying gas can. Uh-huh. That's what they'd call it in World War II when you load up the bomber to go extra far. Yep. You're just a flying gas can at this point. So they're getting rid of everything to to have a chance to get this boat where they can live. Because mm-hmm. they could live that first winter on the ice with the, the endurance. Yep. And they can't. There's no chance of that being survivable. One more year. Yeah. With these little boats and with their meager supplies. Yep. So they have some other problems. Once they actually get to water, which Mm -hmm. is a whole other thing, it's still uncomfortable. You're still trudging. You're still sludging. People are not happy. Now you're hungrier. Mm -hmm. Now you're sicker. Now Now you're you're colder. More wet. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, you're wet from now until you die or you make it. Yep. And they finally get to the water, and now they have some other real huge decisions to make. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, competent people there, in theory, to navigate, mm-hmm. but no one, and I mean no one, has navigated this part of the Antarctic Sea and this small of a boat to try and get to the places they're going to try and get. Ever. This is 100% virgin territory. Yep. And they've got uh, a few choices. They can try and get around to the you know, the land base in Antarctica that they wanted to get to overland. Mm -hmm. And there's some islands they can try and get to. And the problem with all of the islands is that they're comparatively close, but they're all small and there's nothing there. Yeah. If we get to those islands, you are on land, but there's no... There's nothing on that land to sustain you. Yeah. Um, It's the same as being on the ice, but now nothing's melting, nothing's cracking. So it's better than where you're at, but you still can't live there. And, you know, they're originally thinking, hey, we're going to go to this one little volcanic leftover cone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it Desolation Island? Uh, what Deception it? Island. Deception Island. Yeah. I knew it was some like, why you're going to head for that? That's your go-to move? <laughs> like, that's an omen, right? Desolation works with, like, the <laughs> volcano theme. Right. But, so they try and go to Deception Island. I think the reason they wanted to go there is because there was, like, a chance that a whaling ship yeah. would go by. Sometimes <laughs> a whaling ship might go by this island close enough that... They could see the island and you could see it. That's your hope. (laughs) Everything's tied to that on that island. But that's really what they're like. uh, Yeah, at that point, that's that's their their positive outlook. It's closest. Yeah. Like, there's no arguing that this is, whatever it was, 100 miles closer than choice number two, Mm -hmm. which was... Which was Elephant Island. How does something get called Elephant Island that ain't nowhere near an elephant? Well, so the reason for it is because there's supposed to be these, like, sea elephants, which are kind of like, I don't know, they're some mix between, like, a seal and whatever that, like, sea cow-looking thing is. Like a big walrus-y yeah, something sea like lion, that. something. In this story, one is never seen. <laughs> which is... Which is ironic, I guess. Yeah, they they were really excited at one point because they're like, "Oh, if we're at Elephant Island, we might be able to find these things and we can eat them." Well, there and you that go. never took place. But it doesn't sound like Elephant Island is on any sort of a whaling yeah. route. So they were making their way for Deception Island. They're going out on these three different boats. The three lifeboats that they had brought with them from the Endurance, which they named the Dudley Docker, the Stancombe Wilms, and the James Caird. So already this is tough because they had to split the party. Right. They've only got one ship's captain and a navigator. So they can't navigator. You can't can't, properly. You can't properly captain each of these little ships. All of them. So. Ernest Shackleton, who's in charge of the entire voyage, takes the charge of the James Caird. And then um, Frank Wilde takes over the Dudley Docker. And finally, uh, Frank Worsley takes over the Stancombe Wills. Now, these three are proven. Shackleton and uh, Worsley are proven leaders. And Wilde is Shackleton's number two. He's proven himself enough that they can, you know, man these vessels. The issue is that they don't have enough navigators, so they have to stay within, like, line of sight. They got to stay other. together. You have to stay together. And they do the simplest, but probably the most dangerous thing they could do. <laughs> which was? They tie the boats together. Yeah. They, la- they, they have a line between the boats. They have to have it far enough away that they're not slamming into each other. Uh-huh. But the... When they're out, when they do get to open water, there's whales. They sight all the, they sight blue whales, humpback whales, orca. Yep. Any of those animals are large enough that if they came up and got on the rope, 
you all go down. You, they sink all the boats, <laughs> they, and they would all sink. So you're either all going to make it, or okay. you're all going to die yeah. over this plan. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's either a genius plan or an absolute gamble. Mm-hmm. And so they, they they hook them together. Yep. And they're trying to get to Deception Island, but there's a problem. As they're going to Deception Island, they get uh, however far they get. Not very far. Not very far. When they realize that the current is taking them the wrong way. And and if they go for Deception Island and get too far out in the current and miss it. They're stuck. They're out in the open ocean. Yeah. And they're not going to land on anything unless they happen to hit, like, Peru. Yeah. <laughs> so they decide that they, they have to change course and they make a shot for Elephant Island, thinking that even if we miss Elephant Island, we can catch one of these other islands on the chain. And there are several islands in that chain. It's like the South Shetland Island chain or something like that. I had to look it up because I didn't know. But there's there, there's a stack of little islands on this chain. And if you ran into current issues again, you might miss them too. Yep. But because there's so many of them and they're spread out over several hundred miles, they're like, okay, that gives us a lot of wiggle room to hit something. Yeah. And so now you're... And you think about it, you're in a life draft, mm -hmm. and you're on the Antarctic Sea. It is not calm. No. Not at all. <laughs> it is not a peaceful, put up the sail, put on your flip-flippy floppies, mm -hmm. get your hammock out. You've got Let's giant play the waves coming <laughs> at you. And there's always, you're in these tiny lifeboats. There's always water in the boat. While there's at least two people rowing at all times, you've got another two people that are always bailing water out of the boats. Just to keep you sink. afloat. If you, <laughs> if you stop, like, they're trying to switch people around so, okay, so you can sleep. But there's no sleep there's because, <laughs> well, if I do fall asleep below deck, then I might drown. <laughs> Or I might not be able to bail and we all drown. And if yeah. I'm above deck, you're getting plowed by all this, the waves and the surf. So it takes about seven days of being out on this open ocean. In this little tiny boat. Before they can finally make it to Elephant Island. And when they get to Elephant Island, there's a myriad of different responses throughout the group. <laughs> yes. Ernest Shackleton saw the island and he went to grab another crewmate who was the youngest and he pulls him out of the boat explain, exclaiming that we've made it, we've made it. He sets him on the ground and takes off running for the shore. It's the and first... boy collapses into the water. It's the first actual land, because they've uh -huh. been on ice, not land. It's the yep. first actual land in over a year. Almost yep. a year and a half. And... Shackleton comes back and helps the boy up, drags him to land when the boy exclaims that his feet are frostbitten and he can't stand up. Another man, well, several other men, rush out onto the land and just put their faces in the dirt, just hold it in their hands and just... It's that whole, I'm going to kiss the earth yeah. when I, my plane lands. We see that in, exactly. in TV shows or whatever. The oddest... <laughs> this is awesome. The oddest uh, thing to happen is one of the crewmen... Now, you got to remember, these guys haven't even really eaten in seven days. Yeah, yeah. Because anything you do eat is not going to be cooked. Mm -hmm. Because there are these little tiny, like, Coleman-looking jet boil stoves. Yeah. And you can't make it work plus if you do make it work you might light your boat on fire uh-huh so it's a lose-lose so probably the most bizarre of all of these interactions with their first sight at land is that one crewman grabs an ice pick and goes running around the island and kills every single <laughs> seal that he finds and the idea here 
or at least what we think is happening, is that the seals see the island and think it's a rookery. And they see the people on the island, and they've never really seen people before. There's not people so ever they go, there. Yeah, they go looking over there to see what's up with this. Are they birds? Can we eat them? What's up? So they had drawn several of these seals onto the island, and he goes around just dropping this ice pick into each of them. And he kills like five or six before he finally calms down. <laughs> this is very uh, Walking Dead. Yeah, he's very he's Walking out there. Dead. He was out there, <laughs> and so as soon as everybody gets onto the the land and they pull the boats ashore, Ernest calls up to uh, start the start the fires and get everybody a hot meal. There's plenty of meat now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> What's on the menu for the next four days? Seal. <laughs> Seal. <laughs> but at least it is food. Mm-hmm. And as the season has moved from winter to summer, it is likely that there will... There's there's a penguin, seal, whatever, poop everywhere. This yep. island's covered in it. Mm-hmm. And seabirds. So if there's that much uh, animal poop, that means there's a lot of animals. Yep. So they're going to be able to eat. That's got to have... Some level of comfort. Yep. Um, it's not a balanced nutritional plan. Not at all. No, you're eating... But I think they've been off of the balanced nutritional plan for, for months. For a while. Yeah, now. for a long time. The last time anybody had a fresh fruit or vegetable is... They can't remember. Yeah. And that does weird things to your body. And, I mean, they also have just been eating seal meat and blubber for so long. Yeah. After seven days of being on the water, they're all dehydrated. Oh, sure. Incredibly dehydrated. And it's still so cold that in order to drink any water, you have to boil it or you have to sit in your tent with it and hold it close to your body. Until it melts. So that way your body heat can melt it. But you have to sit really still because if you turn even a little bit it'll spill out right and you lose it and they're drinking out of metal cups it's like a canteen cup uh-huh okay so that if you take a drink out of that even if the water is melted that cup gets cold fast yep it'll 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 be like the kid in a christmas story i gotta duck, duck the ball <laughs> you're gonna turn into that and get your lip ripped off or yep. something so you've survived You've made it to land, and your reward basically is, well, now you're screwed, but at least you're not on ice. At least you're not floating in the ocean. That's the big reward. So we have our next big decision point here, because people are are grateful, Mm -hmm. but they're also like, this ain't home. No. And no one's coming. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm hungry... I'm eating, but I'm not eating any kind of good, normal. This isn't the end. This is all really, really weighing on Shackleton's mind. And he spends a couple of days on the island when he decides that the only way that anybody's going to get out of here is we're going to have to leave most of the people here so that way... We can make a break for, is it South Georgia? South Georgia, 800 miles away. The benefit of going there is that's where they started this trip from. So they know there's people there. Mm -hmm. They know there's a whaling station. They probably know some of the people there because a year and a half ago they were in their house. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge advantage, but there's some problems. (laughs) The biggest problem is that the only boat they have is the James Caird, which they kind of cannibalize some of the other boats to improve upon. And it's still not built for 800 miles at sea. Now, our uh, our carpenter, he does incredible things. He's hammering out tin to patch Holes. Mm-hmm. He's taking layers of wood off the decks of the other lifeboats to raise the sides of the hull of the James Caird. He's, they're like thawing out canvas bit by bit on a fire to sew it together to make mm-hmm. some sort of a top deck thing. So that way they can just try and sleep. 
so that maybe they can keep the water from splashing down into the people underneath. Mm -hmm. uh, the the boat is. You can see this boat. The the James Caird survived and got towed, and it's in England somewhere at some museum. Yeah. Crazy. But all these repairs, how do you do work? How did they even still have the tools to do that? Because they have really gone bare bones. I have no clue. This is the biggest MacGyver operation ever. Ever. And when, <laughs> when I was talking in the beginning of this episode about Apollo 13, I think of that... When they're up there and all the guys back at NASA Mission Control are like, they dump all this stuff on the table and they're like, okay, we got to figure out how to make a filter <laughs> out of this that fits in this hole. So these are the kind of problems that Shackleton and the crew of the Endurance are having, but they don't have NASA. Mm -hmm. They only have themselves yep. to figure out how to fix it and then do the repair. Mm -hmm. Absolutely crazy. Now, that's just the problems they run into on shore. Once they get out on the water, they need to navigate to St. Georgia or and, South Georgia. Right. It's 800 miles away, which means that if they are off by one degree, they completely miss the island. It's completely out of sight. And they stray out, out of any major shipping lanes. Yep, and they stray out into open ocean. And they're no, probably dead. There's no, no way they can take enough food to survive that. So this is the best plan. This is the only plan. I'm going to take my crew. I'm going to split it. I'm going to leave you here for four, five, six weeks. Mm -hmm. Bye, guys. <laughs> While me and the carpenter guy and the best navigator... We're going to go try and take this needle in a haystack. Miracle, maybe we can find this other island place 800 miles away. You guys just hang tight. And to me, like, I'm guessing there wasn't a vote. I'm pretty sure Shackleton's just like, hey, here's what's going on. And if you're one of the people who's not on the boat, you just, all you hear is, I'm stuck here, and if you don't live through this, the backup plan is to somehow put what's left of the other boats together and try and go for that... Uh, for another one? Back to not... Deception go Island. Go back to Deception Island, <laughs> where we already know we may or may not actually... It may not be any better than here. So that's, and you don't have your top navigator. You don't nope. have the carpenter. Nope. So your plan B sucks. Oh, yeah. What do you do? Like, what a hard moment. I mean, I imagine that at this point, everyone had been through so much punishment that the thought of, okay, we just got to hang tight for a couple of weeks sounded like a viable option. But you know that whenever, whenever they laid down to go to sleep at night, they were thinking, how long is it until someone shows up? Right. Because if it's not Shackleton showing up on Elephant Island, there's not going to be anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I just think if you're one of those people that's left behind, that has got to be such a just overwhelming, gloomy feeling and probably the worst of it is when they get everything done and there goes your leader. He did get you this far. And there goes a couple of your other top know how to get things done guys. And there they are out on the ocean and they finally get a sail up or they row whatever they did initially there. And there's going to be that point where they're there and they get moving and then they're gone. And then they're gone.